I'm Johnny, one of the uh, leaders of the church here. Pleasure to be speaking to you today. And uh, a pleasure, I suppose a pleasure, also a, a degree of sorrow, I suppose, to be finishing the book of Acts. Mm, that was the deepest mmm I've heard. I don't know what it meant, but it was deep. Thanks, Mark. Uh, but we are finishing Acts today, which, as I mentioned before, some of you might have heard that and been thinking back and think, wait, wait a minute, that's a bit of a surprise. Because as, as mentioned, two weeks ago, we were in Acts chapter 20. And uh, it spent, spent eight months, actually, getting to Acts chapter 20. And today, uh, in a little more than half an hour, a li- little, but not too much more, uh, we're going to kill off the last eight chapters, okay? That's the plan. We're ready. Are you ready for this, guys? Yes, you're with me on it. Good. Now, if that wasn't ambitious enough, I also want to spend, as we finish the whole book, uh, also to wrap this up in the whole message of the book of Acts and really go back uh, over some of the stuff we've seen before, actually, to kind of encapsulate um, this wonderful book that we've been studying uh, for this year. Okay. And now, if that wasn't itself ambitious enough on its own, also, as we do that, as we do these eight chapters, we go through the whole book of Acts, uh, also, as we do every time we come to the Bible, we don't want to just look back and say, what does it mean, and do the history, and that sort of stuff. also want to bring it up to you guys, uh, and bring it up to us, and wrap us up uh, in this incredible story, uh, so that we can go and write the next chapter in God's story. So that's what we're doing today. And I I know Jonathan was here last week doing Acts 27, uh, but we're going to go right back to what we were the week before, about Acts 20, where we pick up the story uh, around the time I spoke on when I spoke about Paul saying goodbye to the Ephesian leaders. Okay, now, quick note today. You're going to be glad to hear that I'm not going to be reading the entire last eight chapters of Acts. Okay, uh, well, maybe not so glad. Alex, should we, well, should we could change that. Yeah, yeah let's do it. Uh, no, I'm still not going to do that. <laughs> um, but we are, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to be getting verses here and there, telling you the story more broadly, uh, and it would be helpful. Some of those will flash up behind me, those verses, but it would actually be helpful uh, if you've got a Bible or a phone with verses on, uh, just to go through could be helpful for you uh, as well. Uh, mainly to check I'm not just making it up. I often think I should just throw in a verse and just check if anyone knows. Oh yeah, in Acts 29 it says this, but anyway, I won't do that either, but you can check. Your Bible might be helpful. Okay, so what we've seen in Acts up to this point, right from the start, has been uh, the gospel, the good news of Jesus, and the church going out from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, okay? It'll be very familiar to you if you've been around uh, in this series. What Jesus said at the start to his disciples just before he went back to heaven was, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem. And they were. The church was planted in the power of the Spirit in that city in Jerusalem. Uh, miracles, the gospels preached, Jesus is uh, preached. Many people come to follow Jesus. So that happened. And then in Judea and Samaria, the area around Jerusalem, what we'd now call Israel, again, churches are planted the good news of Jesus is preached, people come to follow Jesus. And then, as they would have seen it anyway, the rest of Acts has been about the good news of Jesus going to the ends of the earth. And the key player in the ends of the earth bit has been Paul. And the structure in this book has been uh, these three missionary journeys. Paul, uh, from his base in Antioch, which we would, would now call Syria, in his place in Syria, uh, he's gone out and he'd go to other places where no one's ever heard of Jesus, obviously, because it's a very new thing. Uh, but planting churches, thinking people come to follow Jesus, for the first time doing miracles and he kind of goes out to lots of these places and he goes back and then he goes out again and kind of checks up on them and then goes to some new places and there's three of these missionary journeys and as he comes to the end of his third missionary journey which is where we were two weeks ago he decides that he needs to move on to a specific place and that place uh, at first we see there's something more laying beyond but at first is Jerusalem Acts 19 21 he's in Ephesus at the time he's been there for about three years and it says 
after all this happened, Paul decided to go to Jerusalem. But very quickly, it becomes very clear in the story that this trip to Jerusalem is not just another stop-off. This is quite significant, and there's a sense of increasing foreboding, actually, about uh, this journey to Jerusalem. It's quite clear that some things could well happen there that's not entirely good for Paul. So Acts 20, 22 to 23, this is what he says to the Ephesian leaders. He says goodbye. He says, and now, compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. Sorry, just distract for a second. You know that deja vu sense you get sometimes? It's just kind of strange. Is it someone going to Jerusalem and knowing that hardships are waiting? Sorry, got to get back to my notes. Maybe we'll, maybe we'll pick that up in a minute. Okay, let, let's go back here. So the, he has this unease, there's an unease in the atmosphere about this trip to Jerusalem. So much so that as he tells his friends about it, uh, they take on the unease and, tell, and try to persuade him not to go. So just after this, uh, he leaves uh, the Ephesian elders in Miletus. He goes across to Caesarea. And this prophetic guy comes up to him, a guy called Agabus, and does this sort of prophetic performance. Okay? And it involves Paul's belt. He takes Paul's belt off him. Now, I love to see this. as like those street magicians who like, you go, aha, you didn't know I'd taken your belt, and then his trousers fall down. I think that would have been a great move. Just, I don't know if that happened. It would be good if it did, though. Okay? Um, but then he gets his belt. He ties it around his hands, Agabus, and he goes, uh, if you go to Jerusalem, the owner of this belt, i.e. Paul, will be bound by the Jews and handed over to the Gentiles. Okay? And then I presume he gives the belt back. But what happens also is that all his friends hear this and say, Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. Bad move. Okay? Acts 21.12. When we heard this, we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. There it is again. It's like deja vu. He's got someone going to Jerusalem, sense of foreboding, to such an extent that even his friends tell him, don't go. Okay? I've got to stick to my notes today. Come on, focus. Okay. Paul then is resolutely setting his face towards Jerusalem, and he gets there, and he is met at first. It seems fine. He's met by this happy crowd of faces that are incredibly friendly. Acts 21 17. When we arrived at Jerusalem, the brothers and sisters received us warmly. He's met by this happy crowd, and then he heads straight to the temple. That's what he does. And uh, now at this point, after you think, oh, no, it's all going to blow over. Aha, trouble ensues. Now, what seems to have happened is uh, some of the uh, some J- devout Jews from around the, what they call the province of Asia at that time, who have been in some of the places Paul has been causing a right ruckus for most of the book of Acts, okay? They've been in those places, and they've seen Paul, and they've been involved in the riots and all that, and they've come to Jerusalem for what's probably the festival of Pentecost, because at the festivals, everyone comes to the temple, and they're doing their festival of Pentecost thing, and they look over, and they see Paul, and they're like, we know that guy. He's the guy from Ephesus, and he's the guy from Lystra, and he's the guy from Derby, and all this. And they, they raise everyone up together. They stir up the crowd. The crowd goes berserk, grab Paul, and try to beat, and beat the living daylights out of him, uh, basically. But it ends up, the, the Roman gods come in to keep the peace, and Paul ends up, having been uh, grabbed by the Jews, then in the custody of the Romans. Okay? And the Romans, they don't really have an axe to grind with Paul. They don't really know one way or another. They don't really know what's going on, to be honest. But the crowds at this point are out of control. And in Acts 21, 36, uh, they're shouting, away with him. And they don't just mean, move him to another place, please. They mean, away with him. I think we get the, the sense. Okay? Now, I would imagine now some of you will probably be sharing my sense of deja vu uh, here because we have seen this exact story before 
We're different characters, but we've seen this before. And we haven't just seen this before in the Bible. We've seen this before in the writings of Luke, in the prequel to the book of Acts, in the Gospel of Luke. Okay. In the Gospel of Luke, Luke writes about another man, a man who, after traveling around his region, doing miracles and proclaiming the kingdom of God, he sets his face to Jerusalem, knowing that trouble will await him there. And on arriving in Jerusalem, he's met by friendly crowds. But as he heads straight to the temple, the order is exactly the same. Uh, he is, uh, the, the, the Jewish leaders seize him in one way or another, and he hand, they hand him over to the Roman authorities. And again, the Romans aren't really too sure. They don't really have a side. They don't really know what's going on. But the crowds are very clear. And they're more specific in that case. It's not just away with him. It's crucify him. And that person, of course, is Jesus. Luke, as he writes Acts and Luke's Gospel, is clearly making a comparison between Jesus' journey to Jerusalem and Paul's journey to Jerusalem. That's kind of a funny thing. Now, just in case you want to you're a geek and you want a bit more information on that, uh, there's a, I've got a little chart behind me that you can look at while I'm talking. There's a few other things. It's clear he's doing this. Is, this is, all the commentators say, yep, this is here. But the question we've got to ask is why? Why on earth would he do that? And I think we've particularly got to ask that question where we see there's a certain risk in doing this because first of all, before I go any further, I have to underline quite boldly uh, what, why he's not doing this, what point he's not making. Okay? The point he's definitely not making is that, hey, look at Paul. He's another Jesus. Okay? He's looking around. Is there any relief in the place? Okay? That's, he's not saying that. Luke, along with the other New Testament writers, is absolutely categorical, as we are as a church here, following in their example, that Jesus is absolutely and utterly unique. Okay? Some of you say, yep, yeah, yep, yeah, move on. But you know what? We need to be clear on this, and we need to make sure we keep... Folks, this is very important to us. If you're someone who's not a Christian here today and you're thinking, oh, come, let's look at Christianity. What is Christianity? There's all sorts of things that go along with it. What is it, essentially? Well, Christians, who we are, we're Jesus people. That's who we are. Uh, We believe that there is one figure in history who is trustworthy, who we can trust for wisdom on our lives, who we can trust for salvation with God, and his name is Jesus. And the Bible have lots of other characters in it, lots of other heroes, many good characters, but all of them, they point towards that Jesus. Okay? Luke calls him in Luke 9.20, the Christ of God, the, the coming Messiah, the promised one that the Jewish people had hoped for. It's the unique saviour, Acts 4 verse 12, Luke puts, uh, pr- reports Peter preaching this, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Okay, it's clear. Okay? Not just that, this Jesus, not just a Messiah, not just a saviour. He's God in human form. And Luke, as the other gospel writers do, as they came to terms with this incredible reality, they, he weaves it into his gospels, particularly in the narratives at the beginning of Luke's gospel. We see him touching on these things and just, just, just kind of throwing in subtly all the way through. Now, this guy's not just some guy. The Son of God doesn't just mean some human. Now, he's God in human form. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection achieved what nobody else could achieve, both by nature of who he was, God in human form, and the way he lived, the only one to perfectly live out the will of God. Okay, we all on that one? Sounds sounds fair, doesn't it? Okay, so Luke then definitely is not equating Jesus and Paul, and he's saying they're equal. He's not doing that. He's not also saying the trials Paul has in Jerusalem achieved what the trials that Jesus... And in Jerusalem achieved. He's not saying that either. So we've got that clear. 
But that doesn't help us in a sense. We know what he's not saying. What is he saying then? Why would he do this kind of risky move and equate Paul's journey to Jerusalem to Jesus's in this way? Well, as we look at that question, I think the first thing we've got to know, and this is where we take in the whole book of Acts, that this isn't unusual at all in the book of Acts. In fact, I'd go even further than that. I'd say that the identification that Jesus makes with his people is one of the key themes of the book of Acts. The very, very first verse of the whole book, if you can remember back to those dark days in early 2017, this is how he starts the book. He says this, In my former book, Theophilus, Acts and Luke both written to this guy, Theophilus, okay, this is a sequel. In my former book, that's the Gospel of Luke, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. So imagine you're Theophilus, you receive that and you read the first verse. What are you expecting to get in the rest of this book? I'd expect that you'd be expecting to see, okay, then we've seen what he began to do and teach. These are the continuing adventures of Jesus. Obviously, we're going to see what he continues to do and teach, aren't we? That's, that seems to be, make sense, yeah? Okay. But if you read the book of Acts, you've been with us this series, you'll see that that's not exactly what happens. Jesus appears in seven of the first ten verses in this book. But then as Luke points out, he's taken up to heaven. And uh, apart from the odd cameo of vision and dream, we'll see a few of them in a few minutes, uh, that's it from Jesus, in a sense, in the book of Acts. So what Luke's, what's Luke saying? Well, this is Luke's point. Luke's point right from the start is this, that in Jesus' earthly ministry recorded in the book of Luke, we see the beginning of something that Jesus continues in the book of Acts, but through his people. In Luke's mind, the doings and teachings of the early church, in a sense, are the continued doings and teachings of Jesus. And you'll be glad to hear, to avoid any confusion, Jesus agreed with him, which is always nice, okay, for a point for a preacher. You know, is that right? Jesus agreed with him. We see that most clearly in, a, in one of Jesus' main cameos in the book of Acts on the road to Damascus. Uh, preaching it a while ago, Paul, who's a very different character, the same Paul from the story here, uh, very different character then. He's persecuting the church. He hates Christians. He's on the way to Damascus to lock up some Christians. Jesus appears to him, blinding light in the sky. Paul knocked off his horse. He's on the floor. What's going on? Jesus says this, Acts 9, 4 to 5. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. I don't know about you, uh, but I would imagine there would be a response Paul could have made at that point if Jesus had given him a chance, which he he didn't actually. Uh, But Paul could easily say that time, wait, wait, hold on, hold on. This is a case of mistaken identity here. I have never met you before. How could I possibly have been persecuting you? Well, I've I've never met you. I've never seen you. I've never shaken hands with you. I've never listened to you speak to me before. Now, Jesus didn't give him an opportunity to say that. But even if he had, Paul would not have said that. Because he understood quite clearly what was going on here. He he knew what Jesus meant. What Jesus meant was this. He said, Paul, when you were giving assent to the murder of Stephen, we've seen that in Acts Gospel, when you you did that, okay, and when you also uh, were dragging Christians, men and women, off to prison, separating their families, just causing havoc like that, when you were doing that, when you were essentially destroying the church, which is how Luke puts it in Acts 8 verse 3, when you did all those things, Paul, you were attacking me personally. That is how much Jesus is willing to identify with his church. When you picked on me, on my church, Paul, you were picking on me. There's that level of identification. Actually, more just subtly through Acts, we've seen that all the way through, really, haven't we? 
In the Gospels, you see Jesus do lots of miracles. In Acts, you see his church do lots of miracles. In the Gospels, you see Jesus casting out demons. Okay, maybe not as many, but in Acts, you also see his people casting out demons. In the Gospels, you see Jesus persecuted, mocked, and put on trial. And in Acts, actually, it's not just Paul on the way to Jerusalem when that happens. That happens to Jesus' people all the way through the book of Acts. Obviously, there'd be a case in which there's, uh, the followers are following in the footsteps of their master. Okay, you could say that. Uh, but Luke is alluding to something much more profound here. He's saying this, as the church was doing those things, Jesus was continuing his ministry through the church. Let's put it one other way. Let's throw in another image into the pot, a famous image. What is the church? Well, what did Paul say it was? His most famous image was the church is the body of Christ. The body of Christ. Just mull that over again. An image that's very familiar to many of us. We think, yeah, the body of Christ. That means we've all got different roles to play in the body, like a hand and all that. Step back from that for a second. What is it? What's deeper than that? Well, what he's saying is the church is the visible manifestation of Jesus on earth. Just imagine, like, they're thinking, if you were there 2,000 years ago in the Judean hillsides or in Jerusalem, you'd have seen the body of Jesus. You'd have seen a person walking around with arms and legs, and you'd think, whoa, this guy is up to some pretty incredible stuff. How do people see Jesus today? They see him through his church. The church is here to continue the work of Jesus on earth since he returned to heaven. And as we do so, in a sense, it's not in every sense, but it is definitely in a sense, Jesus himself is do- doing those things for us. And I think that's why uh, Luke is so keen to mirror Paul, Jesus' journey to Jerusalem to Paul's journey to Jerusalem. Now, before we move on, which we will, I just, I just want you to sit and soak that in for a second. I think that is absolutely remarkable. Because if, you, if you've done the, the maths, you'll realize this isn't just about the church in Acts that this is true of. This is true of us. This is true of us today. We get to continue and bring towards a conclusion what Jesus started. Listen, we know and we love this fact that Jesus finished a whole load of stuff. Do you know that? He finished a whole load of things. His last words on the cross that, that uh, John reports are, it is finished. He finished sin. He finished off death. He finished off the p- evil powers that held sway over the destiny of human beings. Finished. Done. Completed. There is nothing that any of us can do to add or take away from the finished work of Jesus on the cross. Okay? If you're not a, not a Christian today, and uh, if you were, you were to say, yeah, look, I want to follow this Jesus, I want to come to Jesus and become a Christian, there'll be a whole load of stuff in your life that Jesus can finish right today. He can finish your guilt. He can finish your shame. He can decisively bring you into a relationship with God and remove the obstacles in the way that you can never mess up again. Okay? You might think, oh yeah, as a Christian, it's, I've got to then do all this stuff to do those things. No, no, that's finished. Jesus finishes a load of stuff. We love that, guys. I'm sure as you worship later, you'll revel in the finished work of Jesus. But as we love that, and as we revel in that, we've got to recognize as well that Jesus started a whole load of stuff too. If you come to Jesus today, and you become a Christian, it's not just finished, sin done. Now what do I do now? Well, you know, heaven some point, I presume. That's not Christianity. No, Jesus has started. He got rid of all that stuff so that we can now continue the adventure. 
We can now continue the ministry of Jesus, particularly as a body together. It's a day I want you to think in your mind now. I want to think of an act of, of love or faith that you have committed in your life. When you said, you, you know, I, I stepped out for Jesus. In obedience to Jesus, I did that. I want you to think of it in your mind. Sometimes it might be a small thing, it might be a big thing. You can think of something you did on your own, something you did as part of the church with a number of other Christians. Have you got it? Right in your head, right? Now, now I want you to think ahead to the end of time. And uh, Jesus, with all the saints from all the ages around him, the angels, everyone, okay? And Jesus goes, everyone, I want your attention right now. And he brings everyone's attention to that thing that you did, okay? The one who thought a minute ago, he says, I want you to see this. Put it on a screen maybe in front of Look at this. And then he says this, I did that. That's what Jesus is saying here. He is identifying with us and he wants, as we act and do things, he is doing them through us. What a wonderful thing. What do we learn from all this? Well, I mean, the very least, I suppose, we learn is our lives matter. (laughs) Our decisions are important. Our church is a big deal. Why? Because Jesus matters. Because Jesus is important and because Jesus is a big deal. And he wants to continue his work through us. I hope that's encouraging to you. I hope also that's challenging to you. We'll pick up on both those things uh, in a minute. But let's return to our story now. And while it's encouraging and challenging to us, let's face it, this comparison between Jesus' journey to Jerusalem and Paul's doesn't bode particularly well for Paul at this moment. So let's return to the story as if we'd never come to this before. I know some of you know how this finishes. But let's now go through the thing. Uh-oh, we know what happened to Jesus in Jerusalem. What chance does Paul have? Well, this is what happens. Uh, upon arriving in Jerusalem, as a sea, seized by the Jews, Romans grab him. Okay, but as he's being taken away, the Romans are trying to fight off these people who want to kill him. Paul says, hey guys, guys, I, I need to clear my name here. I want to talk to the crowds. Okay, so the Romans give him an opportunity to speak to the crowds. Okay? And we're all thinking, we know we've been in Jerusalem before. We remember Luke's gospel. We don't think the crowds are going to come around here, do we? We think this isn't going to go well for Paul. And uh, if you're thinking that, you are absolutely correct. Because Paul stands up to speak to the crowds, and he, he, he does a really great job, if you read it. So it's as good as he could do. He's very diplomatic. He's like, guys, we're on the same team. We both worship the same God. Come on. Like, and that God, he talked to me. He told me this stuff. And the crowd going, ooh, actually, not, maybe not too bad. <laughs> and then he drops the clangor. And the minute he mentions, and I've been sent by that God on a mission to the Gentiles. That doesn't go down well, okay? Gentiles being non-Jews, what, does it, what happens? Well, everything kicks off, okay? Uh, this, is, uh, this is what it says, Acts 22, 22 to 23. The crowd listened to Paul until he said this. Then they raised their voices and shouted, Rid the earth of him, he's not fit to live. As they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the commander ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. I've been in public speaking for a while. Uh, I... I've kind of clocked this early on, that if people start stripping and throwing mud at you, that's not good. That's not gone down well. That's, that's const- not that constructive feedback in that way. And that's what happens here. And they don't get him. The, again, the guards protect him and take him away. But this is, well, there's a venom here, okay? And so what happens is the guards take him away, and the guards are totally puzzled. They have no idea why these people are so venomous towards Paul. And say, Paul, okay, we're going to have another plan. We're going to get together just the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council. Let's try again, okay? Maybe they'll be more reasonable. You tell them your story so we can understand what's going on. And again, we're thinking, we've got a sense this isn't going to go well for Paul. And if you've got that sense, guess what? 
You are absolutely correct because it goes even worse than the last one. Uh, Paul, Luke describes uh, how the effect of Paul's second attempt to clear his name goes, and it's found in Luke 23, verse 10. Uh, he talks to the Sanhedrin, then this happens. The dispute became so violent that the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them. Again, not a good sign, really, uh, for a talk. Again, the Romans keep him safe, but you're getting the sense you're reading this. There's only so many of these he can really last, Paul. This is, we've seen this. We know where this is going to end. If Jesus, God's son, couldn't make it out of this sort of situation, surely Paul is done for. That's where we are at the end of Luke 23, verse 10, okay? But then something utterly unexpected happens. Luke throws in a complete curveball for us. What happens then? Jesus appears. Jesus himself comes to Paul. The same Jesus that it looks like, apparently, who he'd succumbed to these angry crowds. It looks like he'd uh, given in, he'd he'd given to the scheming of these wheat wheels officials, to the the cultural and religious divisions in Jerusalem. It it looked like, for many people, that he was the guy who who kind of not made it through that. Well, that Jesus comes to Paul, and this is what he says. Verse 11 of chapter 23, The following night, the Lord, that's Jesus, stood near Paul and said, Take courage, as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. What's happening there? Well, what's happening is this. For all of the comparisons that Luke has been making between these two journeys, suddenly he slaps us in the face with a stark contrast between the two. Because for all the similarities, there is a key difference between Jesus and Paul's journeys to Jerusalem. And it's this. Paul gets to go further. Paul gets to go to Rome. And that's exactly what we see in the last chapters of Acts. Please, I really encourage you. They're they're great chapters. Put aside an hour sometime. Chapter 20 to 28, you can see all the detail. Um, But I'll just summarize what happens, really. is is, uh, The the Roman gods again take him away. And they decide, look, we've got to keep this guy safe. And so they they ship him off to Caesarea, a place around the corner, uh, really. And uh, there's a plot by the... Jewish leaders again to assassinate Paul. They, they fix that. But what happens is Paul ends up in, a, in prison for two years in Caesarea. And after that time's up, one of the governors at the time goes, look, Paul, it's time. We're going to send you back to Jerusalem. Uh, we're going to sa- hand you over to the Sanhedrin. I'm sure it will have quietened down. Paul realized it really hasn't quietened down. Time is not the healer in these sort of things. And Paul does this. He appeals, it says in the passage, that he appeals to Caesar. As a, in, in that day, if you were a Roman citizen, which Paul was, and you appealed to Caesar, as the governor says in Acts 25, 12, he says, you have appealed to Caesar, to Caesar you will go. And I'm sure we all know what that means. Because uh, if you go to Caesar, you're going to? Mm, that was just, it was like an earthquake. Go on, where are you going? Where, where does he live? Rome, you go to Rome, as Jesus had said. And that's what happens. So uh, his journey, if you were here last week, we'll know, you'll know it's far from smooth. There was a shipwreck on the way, bitten by a snake all day in the life of Paul. Okay, uh, But he makes it, and uh, on arriving there, he's still kind of a prisoner um, at the end of the book of Acts. But it's the most lax prisoner agent I've ever come across. You know, I, I, used, to, I used to work in a, a prison tuck shop. Okay, once years ago, it was like you get the little notes from hardened criminals saying, don't forget my tazos in my Walker's Chris. Seriously, like I want this number of blackjacks. Okay, that, that was kind of lax in some ways. This is much more lax. Okay, he's in, he's in Rome, apparently in prison, but allowed to do whatever he wants. Okay, last two verses of Acts are these. Acts 28, 30 to 31. For two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God, that's what Jesus was doing. I was 
Galilean hillsides, just years before. Remember it started there, so a few hundred people, thousand people maybe. Now in the middle of Rome, he, he proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. The end. Curtain comes down. What a way to end the book. Fantastic. So, so what do we learn from all this, packing it all together? Well, if I can pack it into a sentence, what I think we learn is this that Jesus wants us to go further. Jesus wants us to go further. This has been the message that Jesus has always said to us. He's always said it through the Gospels, not just through Luke, actually through John and Matthew and Mark. John chapter 14, verse 12. This is what Jesus says. Very truly I tell you, talking to his disciples, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing and they will do even greater things than these. Pause on that for a second. This is Jesus speaking. Think of some of the things Jesus did. We do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. Context of this verse is about miracles. Jesus is talking about miracles. And actually, I don't know if you've ever reflected on this, in the book of Acts, we do see a flavor of this. I think that's odd. Jesus did some pretty amazing miracles. Yeah, he did. Incredible miracles. But actually, there's no account in the Gospels of Jesus' shadow ever healing anyone. Like there is in Acts chapter 5 with uh, Peter. No account in the Gospels of handkerchiefs and aprons that have touched Jesus being taken to the sick and healing them, as we see of Paul in Acts 19, 11 to 12. There's this little hint, I think, of greater things. He's serious. It wasn't like, oh, yeah, guys, don't worry. You'll do much better things than me. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I think that's how I've often read that verse. No, even in, even in the first generation, you see that sort of thing happening. It might sound like a silly thing to say, but as Jesus saw those things, you've got to realize he was delighted about those things. That there's no sense in which Jesus is sitting there and going, oh, I missed the shadow one. I wanted the best miracles. This wasn't the deal, Father. I wanted the biggest crowds. I, I wanted the best adventures. No, that's not Jesus. No, he intentionally releases his followers to greater things. Actually, to be clear, obviously, Jesus is doing those greater things as we do them. That's the whole point and it's not as well that Jesus is so meek that he's like oh I don't want the glory for me you have the glory no no Jesus is the only one in the whole of history who can rightfully claim the honor and glory for himself this is the deal how does he glorify himself by releasing us to go further that's how he does it or just to join these two points together that we've seen today you could put it another way Jesus wants to do even greater things through his church than he did as a man walking the streets of Judea, Samaria, and Jerusalem. I think that's what he was basically communicating to Paul on that night. Paul's beaten up, battered, probably utterly confused, discouraged. Jesus comes to him and says, Hey, Paul, get up. Come on, dust yourself off, mate. You've been here before. You've had a few scrapes. This is, uh, this is okay, right? I want to do something new through you, Paul. I want to go further through you than I've ever been before. Paul, get up. Pack your bags, let's go, because I've never been to Rome before, and we're going, and I'm going through you. I think that's what he's saying to Paul. The kingdom of God is a growing kingdom. Jesus kept going on about this. It's a little tiny seed, and it grows to the biggest of trees. And a growing kingdom is a kingdom that continually takes ground, that continually goes further and further and further. And of course, there might be times uh, where there are setbacks. You might have to take a step back before you go forward. There'll be times where you have to just hold ground in an area. That's, of course, what happens sometimes. You sometimes just have to retake lost ground. That's the case as well. 
But actually, as a whole, a kingdom that grows, like Jesus said, on the whole, will be continually going to places that it's never been to before. It's helpful to us to think that through. That's true geographically. Uh, so, for example, in the world today, there would be some places, uh, many people, who, in the sense I've been talking today, Jesus has not gone to them before. So it would often be called unreached people groups, uh, places that people in the world who haven't heard about Jesus, who there's not an established church in their area. And think of this, this is kind of cool. Even this morning, right now, at this time, there will be people, Christians in the world, who are reaching out to those people, who are pushing Jesus further, further and further, even now. That's cool, isn't it? That's a really cool thought. People learning language, people instigating conversations uh, with people who've never heard of him before, taking Jesus further geographically. I think culturally, this is the case too. It's a little more abstract, but I, I think we definitely see this here. It's, it's fascinating to see the trajectory that, that Luke maps out for Jesus in his ministries in the book of Luke and the book of Acts. And so in Luke, Jesus starts off in Nazareth, the utter backwater, then Galilee, which is, well, I mean, what's Galilee? It's over in the sticks, okay? And he sees him, he takes him all the way, and at the end, where is he? He's in the capital, he's in Jerusalem. It's a trajectory. There's a cultural trajectory from the fringes of Jewish life to the center of the whole nation, culturally. And then in Acts, he does exactly the same thing. Where we start, we know continuity errors here, we start in Jerusalem, okay? And that's the capital of, of uh, Israel. But it is, again, Israel itself is a backwater. So you can imagine Caesar and his chums in Rome kind of thinking about the empire and someone going, oh yeah, there's Palestine over there. Pal- what? Pal- oh yeah, yeah. That place, yeah, send Pilate over there, he's, he's useless. Like, we don't care about Palestine, okay? It's a backwater, okay? So, but what happens is, it goes from, the gospel, the church goes from there to the very cultural, military, political center of the entire world. <laughs> we can't miss that. That's, Im- that's immense. And we know this about Jesus. Where Jesus goes, he doesn't seem very keen about staying on the edge of things, have you noticed that in your life, for example? Is anyone, if you haven't spotted that yet, I'll be, spoiler alert, this is where he's going. You think, think often people become Christians, you think, yeah, I'll just slot Jesus in about here. He can help me out with a couple of things, but I'm really passionate about this. This is where my heart is. God, it, just so you know, if you're there now, okay, it's not bad, it's good news, but he's going for the center. <laughs> One way or another, he might be very patient with you, he's very patient with me, but then you find out he wants it all. He, he goes for the heart. Because he's life and he's goodness and he's love and he wants to be at the center of things. He came not just to rescue the peripheries of this rebel planet. He came uh, for the whole lot. Okay? He came to say, look, I, I love all of you. That I'll die for you. The, the offer is for all of you. He goes through the center. And just as he does it in our lives, uh, his, the same trajectory is in culture as well. or Intentionally is there as well. Jesus is not happy staying in the suburbs. Jesus is not happy where Midsummer Murders would put him in the village fate, okay? That's, Jesus isn't happy for his church just to sit there. Oh, yeah, well, you're safe over there. That's, that's fine. He's not happy for 7 a.m. thought of the day on Radio 4 or whichever latter radio station it is. I don't know. He's not happy there. Did you know that? That's not where Jesus lives. Our culture would have him there. And so often our view of Jesus is like, yeah, okay, brilliant, wonderful news. Jesus, he, he, his name was kind of spoken in, the, in that area on the suburb out there or just at that time at the crack of dawn on that radio show. Those things are good, you know, that's okay. But that's not where, where he stays. You might think, well, but if you put Jesus in, in the places of business or 
the arts or the media. Oh, oh no, Jesus would never survive in, the, in politics. Oh no. You know what? If, when we start thinking like that, we've misunderstood Jesus. Because not only does he stand up in those places, he wants to go to those places. That's the trajectory, the trajectory sorry, that we see in Luke's writings. But how does he go there? He goes through us. We take him there. I want to ask you two questions as we close to make this kind of practical. They're both very similar, really. The first is this. Is your focus on repeating old things or on doing new things as a Christian? Put it a different way. Is your focus on holding on to ground that was won long ago or even on winning back ground that was won long ago? Or is your focus on going further than those who went before you have gone? Let's think about that. Luke understood that the kingdom of God is about the latter more than it's about the former. Yeah, there are times, as I've mentioned, where we want to turn the clocks back, where we want to win back lost ground. But even when we do those things, we've got to be aware that Jesus' eyes are always ahead to the new things, to the further from Jerusalem to Rome. In a cultural climate, I think, like we find ourselves in now, it is so easy for us to lower the bar regarding our expectations of what Jesus has got in store for the church, okay, in our nation. Sometimes we can just think, oh God, if we could just survive, if the church can just survive, that would be great, okay? (laughs) Or even at the best prayers can be, would you please bring the church back to where it was 50 years ago? Can we have full churches again like we had 50 years ago, Lord? Some of you might go back a little further in history. You might say, we'd like to see revival like in the 18th century. Those of you who know a bit of church history, Whitfield and Wesley, anyone know those guys? Heard of them? You know, minor characters in our nation. Not really. Uh, But anyway, Whitfield and Wesley, massive revival in England. We say, please, God, if only, if we could see something like that happen again. Those who are a little bit older, you might remember something of, of this. Anyone been to a Billy Graham crusade? And you're, yeah, okay, the hand wrote out there. I, I, I always want to remember Woking Leisure Centre. Okay, it had life, the letters were all jumbled up. You remember that one? Yeah, okay. Some of you might say, God, please could we see people flooding to, the, to hear the gospel like they did in the times of Billy Graham, okay? Those are great prayers, guys, just so, so you know. They're good prayers, biblical prayers. In the Psalms, often, the Psalmists say, God, restore the works that you used to do. We want to see him again. But actually, there's something wrong with just stopping there with those, our prayers. Just to put it simply, if that's where you're setting your goals, I do want to burst a, a bubble for you a little bit, is that it's important to know that things weren't all right back then in the glory days of England as a good Christian nation. I just hope, hope you're aware, <laughs> aware of this. There were lots of full churches, but there were lots of very dead churches as well. And uh, I think our nation got very, very good at ticking the God box and covering our back with some outward affiliation to Christianity. But look, we did some awful things. <laughs> this is aware, this is in the cultural kind of stuff nowadays, the awful things we did often in the name of Christianity. No, Jesus is not interested in reliving the glory days. He wants to do something new. He wants to go further. Have you ever thought that in your generation... Or for your kids, that we could go further than what they went before. Like a revival, like in the old days. I think Jesus would say, great, I I like it that you're there, but I want to say something to you. I've been there. I've done that. I've been to Jerusalem. I'm off to Rome. I want you to take me there. 
Now, this call, I, I hope, as I said before, there's a comfort and there's an encouragement from this. Because it's not just we should go, it's saying, look, and of course, as we go, he'll go with us. I want you to hear this. As Jesus said to Paul in that prison, he said this, take courage. I want to hear you, you to hear the same. Take courage. As many of us are pushing forward, we're trying to say, look, we want to uh, take a ground for Jesus. We want to serve in new ways. We want to show love in new ways to our communities and friend, to our friends. It's hard. Jesus would come to you today and he'd say, take courage. Let's do the logic here. The Father, who has all the power, who made everything, who's in charge of the whole universe, he is intent on glorifying his Son. Did you know that? That's very high on the agenda of the most powerful being in the universe, right? How is the Son going to be glorified? As we take him further is one of the key ways, through the church. Therefore, as we do that, it would be a little bit obtuse of him to abandon us, wouldn't it? (laughs) To put it bluntly. No, as we go, he goes. We take courage. Please take courage as you go forward. And there's encouragement here, but there's also, uh, and it would be amiss of me not to mention it, there is a sense of responsibility on us too. And I, I do want us to feel it. Do you want Jesus to go into your workplace? You need to go into your workplace. It's okay to pray. We often pray, Jesus, Holy Spirit, come. Would you come and do this? Convict my friend in this. Whenever you pray that, you need to hear back ahead Jesus saying, yeah, I, I want to ask that prayer. Go. Go, you go. Not just turning up, which is kind of handy if you're at work, okay? But ha- turning up thinking, how can I show love like Jesus would in my office today? How can I be a peacemaker in this environment today? How can I shine like a light so that people would praise my Father in heaven today? If you're offered a promotion or a step forward, if, if that fits in with the responsibilities God's given in your family and stuff, you say, yeah, I want to take this in faith that I can, I, I can bring more of Jesus. I can be more salt and light today. That's how we take Jesus into our workplace. Do you want Jesus uh, to go into your local area? Do you want Jesus in Bearwood, in Smethwick, in Albury, in Harborn, in Hales-Owen? You need to go. We need to go to those places. Do you want Jesus to have a voice back into our society? Did that resonate with you before? Yeah, I'd love to see Christian voice back into business, politics, the arts. Well, how is that going to happen? Jesus could do all sorts of things. He can do what he wants. But the key way is, no, you go. Are you in those areas? Push forward. Take courage as you push forward. Be saying, yeah, we've been in Jerusalem for a while. Let's go to something new. Let's see a new thing in those areas again. Last question as we close. It's very similar to the first one. Is your faith based on the things that have happened before or on the greater things that Jesus promised to do. Another way to say that is your bar for what is possible set on what the church has seen before or on the new things Jesus wants his people to continually push into. Would you be happy to make it to Jerusalem or are you in faith to push on to Rome? The book of Acts lays out an incredible template for Jesus' church. We're to be people who keep pushing further, who keep expecting God for more, who keep looking for new places that Jesus wants to step into. And uh, as I said, we, we can be confident as we do that, as we push further, Jesus will be with us. One of the reasons is this, that we are the body of Christ. So we can be confident. And in a sense, as we go, we've got to remember this, that Jesus is going through us. It's a wonderful privilege. I'm going to pray in a second. I just want you to think, just want you to think now, where are the further, what, what does further mean for you? In wh- how you dream, 
what does further mean for you? When you pray in the big picture, where do you want Jesus to go that he's not at the moment? Maybe you just stop praying like that because you just would like him to be a little bit respected again because his name is, is seen so lowly in our nation. Let's think back to maybe how you've even prayed before, but probably into new ways. Big picture, where do you want Jesus to go? And wh- that you could take him. I think short term as well, this week, how then can you start pushing further? How can you start taking Jesus in those directions? Enabling Jesus to work through you to go on to the roads. I'm going to pray for you and then we'll be done.